Soapbox, a podcast at the intersection of science, policy, and advocacy. I'm Miriam Zaringham, joined today in my DC apartment by Avital Percher. Hey, everybody. Stepping onto today's Soapbox, we have Dr. Monica Triumoher, who is a neuroscientist by training turned science communicator. And she currently serves as the Director of Communications and Science Outreach for Ciencia Puerto Rico, which is a nonprofit organization and a global network of Puerto Rican scientists who are committed to democratizing science and serving their community in Puerto Rico. And she's also the Associate Director of Diversity and Communication Training for iBiology, which is another nonprofit that produces and distributes online videos about research from the world's leading biologists. And so we had a chance to chat with her at the AAAS annual meeting in February when we were in Austin, Texas. Which was amazing. Which was awesome. Sadly, Devin, our esteemed, lovely co-host, was unable to make it. Zia's thesis writing it. Because he is currently writing his thesis, which is super exciting. But Mm -hmm. a recurring theme at the AAAS meeting was around science communication and how do we make science more relevant to the public at large. And Monica has thought really long and hard about how to make science more culturally relevant so that it can better inspire the next generation of scientists and also get people engaged and excited about science and how it can ultimately serve society. Mm -hmm. For me, the worthy note was paying attention to how they got organized and how they're operating. Ciencia Puerto Rico. Yes, Ciencia Puerto Rico. And how, in part, in a major thanks to Monica's work, uh, how they're working and what the, how they're deciding to leverage their community. And yeah. I think that's a really great part of the story that we have today from talking with her. Yeah, it's incredible. Over the last decade, uh, Ciencia Puerto Rico has built a network of over 7,000 scientists across the Puerto Rican diaspora and has connected them and been able to mobilize them to address some of the challenges and opportunities that exist within Puerto Rico, which is even more in the scientific awareness and in the global awareness after the hurricanes Irma and Maria that devastated Puerto Rico. As you'll get to listen now. Yeah. So I met Monica at the Society for Neuroscience meeting and have been really thrilled to start a partnership between Ciencia Puerto Rico and the organization that I work with, 500 Women Scientists, working to partner and leverage our network so that we can raise money for Ciencia Puerto Rico through what we're calling science salons, which are essentially public talks that are happening around the country. And so we'll get to talk more about that in addition to some of the organizing work that Monica has done. She's been a really great mentor and source of inspiration for me. And so I'm really excited to, for you all to hear how amazing she is. So with that, enjoy. Well, thank you so much for joining us at the AAAS annual meeting, Monica. I'm excited to be here. Yeah. So you are somebody who wears many hats. Yeah. And so just to like kick us off, could you tell us what you do and why? 
so I do wear a lot of hats. And so the best way for me to summarize what I do is I use online technology, storytelling, cultural relevance to make science more accessible to audiences that are often not included in science or that feel that they don't belong in science. And and the way I do that and the, the way I like to think about my work is that I use science communication, outreach, and education to empower these individuals that are underserved or underrepresented, both scientists and their audiences. So even though I have known you for, I guess, like a number of months now, Mm -hmm. and I follow you actively on Twitter. It just occurred to me to ask how you found your way into science and whether you were somebody who growing up saw yourself represented. And it's totally fine if you did. (laughs) I did not. Um, I did not. So I am originally from Puerto Rico, and I grew up in a rural community there. And so, no, I did not know that science was done in Puerto Rico or that there were any Puerto Rican scientists really until I got to college because I never saw scientists on on TV or books. I always loved science as a kid because I grew up in a rural community. I was surrounded by nature. Mm. I like to say that nature was my play laboratory. Like I would come back from school, get changed and just like go into the wild, catch lizards. I had a cow growing up. So that was my natural environment. Mm-hmm. I was always very curious about why things worked the way they did. And um, I also used to help my dad. So I grew up kind of in a farm. And so I would help him build things around, fix things around the house. And so I was always interested in taking things apart and understanding how they worked. So. In retrospective, I was always very interested mm-hmm. in in science, but I didn't know that science was something I could do. I remember as a kid, I used to love Beekman's show. Yeah. <laughs> and it was so weird because obviously the scientist was a white dude with a lab coat and crazy hair. And there was a girl, but she was also white. And then there was a some random mouse or rat character. I don't know. It was weird. But it was dubbed in Spanish. And so not only did they not look like me, but their Spanish was different. And so I remember loving that show, but you know, my idea of science was like, they do science. What I am doing when I am going out and hiking and finding interesting looking rocks or catching lizards or putting snakes in a jar for my mom, that's not science. Mm -hmm. So I never saw myself represented. I never thought that was something I could do until really I got to college. So did you start as as a science major or did you find your way to that? Interestingly, I did. So I started as a, well, a general biology major and then I switched to human biology because I didn't want to take botany. Sorry, plant people. I, I I think plants are lovely, but I did not too many chromosomes. <laughs> I just was not interested in in studying plants. I was like botany, no. But I wanted to study medicine. Mm. You know, I was always very interested in the natural world. And then, when I was eleven, my dad was diagnosed with depression, and so that was very traumatic. 
because I essentially the person that my dad used to be was not anymore. His behavior changed so dramatically mm-hmm. that you know it was noticeable for me as a child, and I didn't know what was happening really, but I knew it had to do with the brain. And so at that point, I became obsessed with the brain and understanding or, you know, I was very curious about how what was happening in the brain had to affected his behavior. And so that event in my life really steered my interest towards the brain. And so I wanted the only profession that I knew about that had something to do with the brain was psychiatry because mm-hmm. my dad was seeing a psychiatrist. So I was like, that's what I want to do. I'd never, I've never liked hospitals, so medicine was never a good choice for me. But that was the only science-related career I knew about. And to become a psychiatrist, I had to study medicine. And to study medicine, I was told I need to go into biology or some sort of natural sciences. Mm-hmm. And so I started as a biology major. And then it was when I was in college, my second, the transition between my second and my third year, my freshman biology professor, she became a mentor. She was actually the first scientist, Puerto Rican scientist I ever met. Mm. And she really pushed me to apply for a uh, summer research program. She said, you know, you should do this. I think you'd be great at it. And at the beginning, I was like, no, I want to study medicine. Like, no, I don't want to do that. And she pushed me. She really did. She said this would help you with medicine. If you want to study, go to medical school. This is going to help you get in. And I was like, okay. So I did it. I filled out my paper application. I'm not that old, I swear. Uh, (laughs) But I filled out my paper application, and I was accepted into the summer program to do research at a medical school that happened to be next door to the college that I was attending, the University of Puerto Rico in Bayamón. And after the first month, I was like, this is it. I can discover things. And I I was mind blown by that. At that point, I decided, forget medicine. This is what I want to do. Awesome. I'd like to touch back just a little bit because I think two things that you talked about seemed originally separate from each other, but when you presented in the continuum, they actually connect very well. And that was the issue of the lack of role models and then your personal experience that drove you into science. Mm -hmm. And I was thinking while you were telling us about that, your personal experience with your father about an issue that our university had where a professor went on social media and criticized applications in which they presented a a seemingly tropish background that led them into the sciences. And while hearing you talk and while thinking about that, I had the thought of how interesting it is, is that with the lack of role models that tell you you can enter it already based on watching the Beekman show, mm-hmm. your personal experience, which is actually a lot of what a lot of people experience, is what is the driving force behind it. Yeah. And I just thought that what I thought were two separate is I'm starting to wonder now if this is rather a continuum the lack of introduction and your own personal experiences because there's nothing else to reinforce it from your exterior interactions with, let's say, media. Yeah, and it's funny that you bring that up because when I saw that tweet storm, I actually went back to my grad school application essay and my essay starts growing up in rural Puerto Rico and like that's the first sentence and the next sentence is like, I love biology and then the third is like and I became interested in the brain because of my dad so like that was my kind of that was my my story but yeah it definitely is you know I didn't have any role models and right now uh, with what I do and how I found my way to what I do those experiences 
are still a big driver. It wasn't intentional when I started doing it, but in retrospective, they are very much connected. You know, I want to show kids and I mean anybody that they do belong in science and that science belongs to them, particularly people from from Puerto Rico. So that original experience of not knowing that science was something I could do and not having those role models, but then science being kind of a solution or a possible solution to a problem or a challenge that I was finding, yeah, they're very much connected. So part of what you do do is work for a nonprofit called Ciencia Puerto Rico. Mm -hmm. And something that is really, Avital and I were talking about this before we were about to interview you, that is so impressive about the work that Ciencia Puerto Rico has been able to do is build a network across an entire diaspora of Mm -hmm. Puerto Rican scientists and really raise the profile of Puerto Ricans who are doing science, who understand that they have a prominent place within the scientific practice. Mm -hmm. And so I'm wondering, how did you find your way to Ciencia PR? It was serendipity, really. So it was 2006, and I was interviewing for grad school. I had been living in Boston, so I was born and raised in Puerto Rico, went to college there, and then I finished. And since I knew I wanted to pursue a career in research, I decided to move to Boston and be a research technician for a few years. I wanted to take a break. I wanted more experience, exposure to other fields of neuroscience. And so while... I had been living in Boston for two years at that point when I started interviewing for graduate school. And I had this real desire to stay connected with Puerto Rico and the Puerto Rican scientific community because that's where I I became a scientist. Mm. And so... I was at MIT at that point and, you know, I was at this incredible place that afforded me so many opportunities and access and I wanted to really use that to to improve and to contribute to science in Puerto Rico. You know, my naive dream when I left Uh, and moved to Boston was that I was going to train in the U.S. and do, you know, Ph.D., postdoc, the whole thing, come back, be a professor in Puerto Rico, and I was going to fix science. And it's a little more complicated than that. Um, But, I, you know, I found my way to contributing still. But, you know, I had this real desire to stay connected with my community, and there was no way. There just no, there was no method to do that. Mm -hmm. And uh, other than, you know, personal connections, but obviously that was, my network was limited. And so I was interviewing for grad school, and... Puerto Ricans, we don't all know each other, but we do find (laughs) each other and then connect with each other. And so I was interviewing, and there was a Puerto Rican graduate student in the program that I was interviewing with. And he told me, hey, there's this Puerto Rican postdoc. He's amazing. He just created this thing. Uh, I don't understand what it is, but you should meet him. So I took a break in between talking to faculty to go meet this guy. His name is Daniel Colon Ramos. He was a postdoc at Stanford, and he's a faculty, uh, he's a professor now at Yale University. And, you know, Daniel, among many things we talked about, he told me, oh, I just started this website called Ciencia Puerto Rico, and my idea is to connect, use it to connect scientists, Puerto Rican scientists, to each other regardless of where they live, where we geographically they're located. 
And he told me, you know, we have news and we want to highlight what other Puerto Rican scientists are doing. And I saw that, like that was the opportunity. It was like when he told me that I was like, oh, you know, that was the opportunity I had been looking for. Um, and so he told me I, he was looking for volunteers to help. And I said, sign me up. I want to help with this. And so that's how I found my way to the organization and, and really to everything that I do now. Mm -hmm. Ciencia Puerto Rico has been transformative. It's, it's changed my life. It, you know, I started with, as many other graduate or young scientists start thinking I'm going to be a faculty and that's the only way I can have an impact in my community. And Ciencia Puerto Rico changed that. It, it showed me so many possibilities. It allowed me to develop all of these skills and experiences that I use now every day. Yeah, I mean, that, that makes me think about, you know, when you look at people who are really engaged in science communication or people that are naturally drawn towards it, it is typically women and people from underrepresented backgrounds, whether they're people of color or ethnic minorities or what have you. And it seems like that communication is kind of our way of signaling that we are here and that it's something that you end up naturally doing. And so I know that now a lot of what you do is science communication. And it's interesting that like the way that you found your way to it was was trying to communicate with your community. Yeah. And in doing so, you ended up communicating with a much broader. I mean, Avital and I are not Puerto Rican scientists but follow you actively on, yeah. on the internet. And it's just kind of amazing the way that technology has facilitated this like natural sort of intuitive training on communication. Yeah, yeah. And in, in the case of Ciencia Puerto Rico, I mean, thinking back, it, it started, it's funny because Daniel was at Stanford, which is in Silicon Valley, which is where a lot of these social networking platforms are now. Mm -hmm. And it's like, it, Ciencia Puerto Rico started around the time that Facebook and Twitter were being born. And it's like, you were into something, like you were onto something. But you know, Ciencia Puerto Rico, the, the actual website, it was a modified worm strain database. So Daniel is, uh, uh, he's a C. elegans uh, researcher, and so was I when I was a grad student. And when you work on C. elegans, you're creating all of these transgenic lines. So you're modifying all these worms and, you know, changing your genes and things like that. And, you know, you're making so many of them. And C. elegans is great because you can freeze the animals and keep them for kind of forever. So you need a way to keep track of these strains. And so he had a kind of simple database that he used to keep track of his worm strains. And he has this idea of like, well, you know, we just need to keep track of where people are. So I can use this thing that already exists and modify it for people. <laughs> and so that's really how the, the networking platform of Ciencia Puerto Rico was born. It's almost a nice metaphor in its own right, right? Because you can change where you are, you can change these yeah. small things about your perspective, like a single gene and a C. elegans. But at the end of the day, you're all C. elegans and you part of the same database. Exactly. <laughs> and you care about the same thing, you know, the bacteria that you're being fed. Exactly. Uh, <laughs> I, I would love to hear more. So Mariam and I, uh, I mean, I am chair, I am one of the co-chairs of a science policy student group. Mariam is heavily involved, or I, I'm blanking on your title officially with the 500 women. I don't know what my title is either. Mariam is I'm heavily in involved women. in 500 yes. women in science, or she is the epitomization of the 500 women in science. 
Um, and so we, we both come from these backgrounds of organizing. Yeah. And I would love to delve actually in that a little bit more. So you started off with Sanse Puerto Rico. Mm-hmm. It's clearly still around because we're talking to you today about it. Yeah. What are you finding your fortes in your group? What is What are you driving forward that you're really excited for the future and what's working for you right now the group's interest so i think the core of of what ciencia puerto rico is is you know it's all of these people we have over 8,600 people that are part of this network but everybody somehow is connected to science in puerto rico and our members get to define that. You know, we we say we are coalescing around this common interest. And a little bit beyond science on Puerto Rico is that we want to have social impact in in Puerto Rico. So in the last few years, I I've embraced the fact that we want to use science for social impact and to serve. In in Spanish, it sounds much more beautiful. It's uh, ciencia para ser patria, and there's no real good translation in English. Um, but you know that that really embodies for me what Ciencia Puerto Rico is you know it's a group of people that are all over the world and they're coming together to put their knowledge and their time and use it to serve Puerto Rico and in as you were referring earlier, it goes beyond that. You know, we are, yes, we we center and we care deeply about Puerto Rico, but what the the challenges that we're trying to address are very universal. Right now, we are focusing in science education at the K-12 level, so at the school level, especially at the middle school level. In, In Puerto Rico, for years, science education has been failing. The middle school level is a critical point because before that, students do pretty well in standardized tests, with which we know are not perfect, but you know they give you a measure of, mm-hmm. of proficiency of what the students are learning. And at the eighth grade, you see that students start doing so much worse in science and math. In Puerto Rico, only four out of 10th eighth graders are proficient in, in science, and it's like, less than one. <laughs> it's like 95% of eighth graders are not proficient in math. So it's really bad. That's been a problem for, for a long time. And, and now after Hurricanes Irma and, and Maria devastated Puerto Rico, obviously the problems with the science education and the education system in general have been exacerbated. And and so, you know, a couple of years ago, we'd been working in doing outreach and science communication, doing a little bit of K-12 education and, and professional development, helping young scientists develop skills so that they can become successful professionals. We've been doing that, but we decided to take a step back and say, how can we increase our impact? In, in Puerto Rico, and we all realized that science, K-12 science education was a place where we could make a real difference. Most students in Puerto Rico go to school, mm-hmm. so they'll have to go through the, the K-12 education system, and the system is failing for, for a variety of reasons. It's a complex issue, but one of the, the problems that we see is that students are learning science in ways that doesn't reflect the process of science. They're just learning facts, taking tests, moving on. They're not really going through the process of discovery, not just the kids, but the teachers. They don't have any training in research, so they don't really know how science works. They're not really learning many of the critical thinking and problem solving 
learning skills that mm-hmm. science going through that process of science gives you and so that's a big challenge the other challenge is that science is it feels just as i felt disconnected like science was not for me that's how many kids in puerto rico feel and and in other places this is not only that's unique to puerto rico but they feel like science is disconnected from the reality so you know they're learning about seed dispersion or they're learning about algebra and they're like what does this have to do with my life and so those are two challenges that we are in a great place to address because we are a community of many scientists who are experts in the process of science and and discovery and for the last 12 years we have really focused on cultural relevance how to make science connect with the life experiences the the previous knowledge and and the reality of of our audiences and so we decided you know we are going to tap into our community to try to address those big challenges and and try to change fundamentally how science is taught in Puerto Rico Yeah, your session that you gave a talk at was the first session that I went to of the AAAS meeting. And I was really struck by the overarching theme within that session, which was we need to find a way to make science more culturally relevant. Mm -hmm. And only by doing that and by showing that it is not just for one specific dominant white affluent culture, Mm -hmm. uh, will we reach more people. And it seems like totally obvious, but also really transformational. And I'm really glad that it's been kind of a recurring theme of this whole meeting, really. Yeah. And it's it's interesting that you say that kind of eighth grade mark is where you start to see this big gap widening, because I think that the way that education is taught is it's much more like exploratory and that being in the field and playing around and tinkering until you get to a certain point when they give you a book mm-hmm. and you're suddenly like, what the hell is this? Like, yeah. And, it, and you're just memorizing facts and they don't make any sense and they don't have right. anything to do with you. And they've probably been written by people that don't understand your way of life, especially yeah. given that Puerto Rico is an island that is not on the mainland right. where a lot of Americans don't even realize that Puerto Rico is part of America. Yeah. And so it's just like really awesome that you guys are working to kind of figure out what the community's interests are and tailoring a curriculum around that because science is problem solving. Yeah, yeah. Small pet peeve, Puerto Rico is actually an archipelago. Okay. Okay. My bad. No, 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 no. And and, and it's an opportunity. Um, You know, a lot of people, I mean, Puerto Rico is a set of islands. Mm. So that's an archipelago, right? And most people, when they talk about Puerto Rico, they said the island. And even in Puerto Rico, people refer to it as la isla, the island. But Puerto Rico is actually 78 municipalities. Two of them are small islands of the main island of Puerto Rico, Vieques San Culebra. And I've had a lot of people argue with me like, well, you know, you just have to go with what people are familiar with. And I resist that because Vieques and Culebra have been historically marginalized Mm. in Puerto Rico. They're two very poor municipalities that were actually used by the U.S. Navy as practice ranges. And, you know, we could get into that, but... What's a practice range? So basically they use a military practice range. So the Navy goes to this island and it's like, oh, here's this wide open space. We're going to shoot and practice. Oh, yeah. And so usually I try my best and, you know, I've been conditioned to 
say the island, la isla, but I really try to talk about Puerto Rico as an archipelago because I don't want to leave the people of Vieques and Culebra out because they've always been left out. Mm. So side note. No, I think that, I mean, <laughs> we're here to learn. Yeah, no, and, and this is something that I like to share because a few people know about this. Um, and so in the spirit of inclusivity. Yeah, I mean, it's also, it speaks to, you know, my own, I've never been to Puerto Rico, unfortunately. You um, saying. I, could do a trip. I want to. Yeah. Science Soapbox goes to Puerto, Puerto Rico. Rico. Hey, there, there's, I know fantastic science podcasters in Puerto Rico. That oh. would be awesome. Just saying. Road trip or field trip, not <laughs> boat trip. trip. No, because Puerto Rico is an island or, you know, an archipelago in the middle of an ocean, big ocean, a lot of water surrounding it. We can we can hop in our soapbox and sail down. Oh, <laughs> yeah, but that it, but I mean it speaks to the fact that there are a lot of people that are trying to make decisions about an archipel archipelago. archipelago. <laughs> <laughs> oh, sorry, I'll leave that in so that people can just. But this this group of islands that you know there are a lot of people that are trying to make decisions on behalf of this group of islands that they don't know anything about mm -hmm. um, without engaging the people that are actually living there not only on you know what would be the most effective way to teach science uh, in a constructive way but also you know thinking about the relief efforts at large and what is the best way to serve yeah this place that a lot of people have never been and have no knowledge of yeah and no connection to really mm -hmm. yeah so I think that's an interesting opportunity to transition to what's been my personal interest, which is the context of the current state of affairs, which is the aftermath of the hurricane. And I have something here written in my notebook. There's, I have this sentence here about keeping, keeping Puerto Rico in the social media feed. Mm. And I, we were talking about it, and I thought that the conceptual issue of that and how it ties into what we were just talking about, this issue of maintaining the presence and reminding people of what's going on is mm -hmm. absolutely critical. And I wanted to just bring that up and get what your thoughts about that and where it stands right now. Yeah, this is something that Marion and I have exchanged emails about at least. You know, for me, obviously, Puerto Rico is is very important to me. It's a big part of, of who I am, of why I do what I do. And, you know, part of my work has always been about visibility of Puerto Rican science and Puerto Rican scientists and how Puerto Rico is part of the broader pursuit of scientific knowledge. That, that's always been part of what I do but now with with the devastation after the hurricanes it's been even more important to keep it in the public eye and I don't have a huge soapbox but I do have a soapbox I have platforms I have access and so I after the the hurricane I decided to you know go full on and and hack the shit out of it you know like I've always been about how can I leverage the resources and the spaces where I am to to have a seat at the table to you know to voice perspectives or or bring the experiences of people that are not in the room you know how do I do that and and with with uh, Puerto Rico situation you know I've just 
gone all in with that of taking advantage of the platforms that I have. And so I'm very active on social media, particularly on Twitter. And so I've decided like, I'm just going to tweet incessantly about it. And I'm not going to apologize. Like it was funny after a couple of weeks after the hurricane, especially Hurricane Maria hit, there were still people that had never had not heard from their families because communication was wiped out. And there were people that had not heard from their families. And I saw some people on Facebook, particularly apologizing for continuing to post about Puerto Rico and what was happening. I'm like, I'm not apologizing. You should know about this. Everyone should know and be angry about this, about what's happening. And so, you know, for me, it's been about, you know, how do I use my platforms? How do I use my voice and really my training? Because I'm a scientist by training, but I've been doing communication for a long time. And so I have some knowledge and skills that have allowed me and connections that have allowed me to call journalists or friends in the media and be like hey this is happening or here's an, an interesting story or do you want an angle on this that you probably have never heard about you know it could, I'm in that position to help and I am very much willing to take advantage of it yeah and it's I think that's amazing because the scientific community, I think, is fundamentally a very privileged community. Mm -hmm. uh, the, just the the people that have access to science and mm -hmm. the the time to be making, you know, thirty thousand dollars a year and living, you know, in in graduate housing, and it's it's it selects for people with an immense amount of privilege. And yeah. so the fact that you are both tied to this community that is you're constantly in in people's feeds and a constant reminder that this continues to happen mm -hmm. that there continue to be like huge infrastructure problems that are not getting addressed is yeah. really really powerful yeah and I think it's not something that I really appreciated just the power of being in somebody's Twitter feed until I made a conscious effort to diversify my feed mm -hmm. and make sure that I'm getting all of the perspectives that I really care about before I try to do advocacy on behalf of them because yeah. you can't be a good advocate if you're not listening. Yeah, if you're not immersed, if you're, yeah, exactly, if you're not understanding and to do all of that, you have to listen. And, you know, going back to your comment about privilege, yes, you're absolutely right, but you know, I have some of that privilege. Like I recognize that even though I am part of a community that's underrepresented, that's been oppressed, frankly, and that right now the people in my homeland are, are suffering, you know, I have an immense amount of privilege and I recognize that. And, and so, you know, the way I've been thinking about it is I am going to use that privilege to help mm -hmm. that community in any way that I can. And, you know, like, also, I've seen this, you know, I've been talking a lot about Puerto Rico anywhere I go, but also there, it's the first time in my life that I have seen U.S. media and people in the U.S. talk about Puerto Rico so much, because even though it's not a part of the news cycle, the very crazy news cycle that we have these days, mm -hmm. It's it was more than usual. Like often Puerto Rico was ever mentioned in, in particularly in US mainstream media. And after the hurricane, you know, people would talk about it. So I was like, before I felt like I always had to justify why do I care so much about Puerto Rico? Why am I promoting Puerto Rican science? And now I don't have to do that as much 
because people are like, oh, Puerto Rico, hurricane. And they're like, oh, shit's bad. Something happened, you know, and they may not understand the full scope of what happened and what continues to happen and how bad things still are almost five months after the hurricane but i they have a little awareness and i see that as an end to be like actually let me tell you my father has not had power since september 6 of 2017 and there are thousands of people like him mm -hmm. that are actually in a worse position because they lost everything he still has a house you know and so i use that as an opportunity to be like let's talk let's create awareness yeah i think as the scientific community is becoming more engaged in activism or advocacy or whatever you want to call mm -hmm. it there's kind of a pushback for people to leave their own identities out of it instead of leveraging them to raise awareness about other cultural issues that touch yeah. on science yeah and so I've just been in great admiration of the way that you've, you and, and the Ciencia Puerto Rico team have been able to mobilize so quickly because you've built this network over the last yeah. decade yeah. that has been able to have this huge impact when this really huge thing happened yeah. um, and to keep it in our, in our consciousness. Thank is, you. Yeah, I think it's awesome. Thank you. I, I have to say I'm, I'm really proud of the work that we do and it's been actually it's kept me sane because I've been able to focus all of this anger and frustration and sadness about what's happening in Puerto Rico I've been able to channel that energy into I can do something mm -hmm. and and so for me having the opportunity to do something is incredibly meaningful is it's it's really that opportunity to serve again like going back to this idea of science to serve like that is my life purpose like that's my life mission and being able to to use that and tap into that to help Puerto Rico in this particularly difficult time is is incredible yeah and I think it's been really great to see sort of like this is a case study for all of the different ways that all of that science training that you've been doing that you didn't ever imagine would have this relevance. Like I was listening to the work that you guys have done over these last five months, building toolkits yeah. around safe drinking water and mm -hmm. disease containment and best practices for that. And the, the um, radio spots that you have been doing, educating the public is mm -hmm. really just... Because sometimes, you know, in a lab, you're just like, why is this important? And yeah. I think it's a good reminder that our training is relevant. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 And I, I was in a talk earlier today and Elise Auerbach, I think is her last name. I hope I'm saying your name correctly, Elise. Um, <laughs> she was talking about how science communication anchored her when her research during her PhD and uh, how doing science communication really anchored her and allowed her to fall in love with her science over and over again mm -hmm. and I really feel strongly about that you know I always liked writing for example but when I was like I can write about science whoa uh, you know like I stumbled upon science communication really because I just started doing it and I didn't know it was a thing but once I had the realization here's what I'm doing and here's what I could do with those skills and that experience I found my voice mm. I found my voice I finally was able to feel a whole because doing science communication and you know all the work that that led me into 
it allowed me to fully accept who I am and be proud of my identity and feel like I really belonged mm. in what I was doing and, and led me to this realization that as you're saying, I don't have to be in a lab to continue being a scientist, first of all, but second, to actually use my training to benefit society, particularly to benefit my community. Mm. So science communication has definitely been an anchoring force for me. Awesome. Can we talk about science salons? I want to make sure that we give a shout out oh, to this. Oh, yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> <laughs> like, yes. So please. I guess the, the way that Monica and I have been working together, so listeners, I have biases in thinking that Monica's the best. <laughs> Full disclosure. Full disclosure. To be totally honest, I am not a journalist. I am an advocate. <laughs> <laughs> so I got in touch with you all on behalf of 500 Women Scientists because we wanted to both learn from your experiences as an organization building this coalition across a diaspora that has grown to 8,600 and stood the test of time thus far and has been really able to mobilize and do great work. So I reached out and asked if we could run a science salons for hurricane relief in Puerto Rico campaign where we are asking our pods, which are essentially chapters across the country to host public events where women scientists give talks about their work and in exchange raise money through admissions and donations for Ciencia Puerto Rico as you continue to try to transform science education and also help continue raising awareness from people who might not have heard of your organization because the world needs more allies mm-hmm. uh, and more people supporting the great work that you're all doing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so the reason why I wanted to bring it up is because I think the this collaboration between 500 Women Scientists and Ciencia Puerto Rico is another example. So Ciencia Puerto Rico has been around for a little longer than 500 Women Scientists. And, you know, we've built this this network that we're able to mob- mobilize for for advocacy, for education, really for, for social impact, like using, again, using science to serve and for social impact. And, and 500 women scientists shares that and I think 500 women scientists is also a global it's a global movement you know pods or chapters are everywhere they're geographically dispersed but you're also a great example of how people can come together about around a topic or an issue that they care deeply about and mobilize to have an impact if you know one thing that we've done with Ciencia Puerto Rico is make sure that our community has has the resources and the training that so you know we're facilitating they have the desire and the the skills and the knowledge for sure to have an impact and we just facilitate that they do that and that's what 500 women scientists are doing with science salons for Puerto Rico and you know I think it's a great example of how communities can come together around an issue and create change and and how people that you know seemingly they don't have a direct connection to Puerto Rico you know it's Mm -hmm. a great example of of allyship and of 
simple things that seemingly simple things that you can do yeah. to have great impact. And our and our mission at 500 Women Scientists is ultimately to make science open, inclusive, and accessible. Mm-hmm. And a key part of that inclusivity and accessibility is making sure that we are partnering with people who share an inclusive vision that isn't specific to women, but is broader because inclusion means inclusion of so many different people from all different walks of life. Yeah. And how, I mean, I think you say it really beautifully that that science belongs to Puerto Ricans. It belongs to everyone. Yeah. Science belongs to, well, in the case of like science belongs to Puerto Rico and Puerto Rico belongs to, to science. science. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, I mean, and also that's a recognition that every community has science knowledge and has things to contribute to science, even if the, even if they haven't really been included yeah. in it. Yeah. And I think coalition building is really how we get to that inclusion. Yes. Yeah. For me, what what's, what's particularly noteworthy about this is having never been at one of these salons. They'll be hosted around the country in March and April. Fantastic. So we'll make sure to put some in the notes. But yeah. what I find particularly compelling about it is there are matters of word choice and there are matters of actions. And our social group, we, we have, I guess, of this basic understanding of the need about inclusion and openness and intersectionality, if mm-hmm. you will. Mm-hmm. We're all on the same page on the matter, on that matter. But the separation um, between the statement of the desire for inclusion, the outward engagement, um, I think is a very, very clear and coherent line and one qualifies you as being okay you have the right values as i do but here you're you're showing your metal and you are demonstrating that you are actually adhering to those guidelines Mm -hmm. and the act of reaching out to i would say another group of similar interests or intersectional interests i think is very noteworthy that's what stood out for me. And the awesome thing about Ciencia Puerto Rico is that it's also run by three women scientists. Yeah. So <laughs> extra, extra, extra points. Yes. Extra points. Extra, extra connection. Yeah. Yeah. But it's been, it's been really awesome to see all of the Puerto Rican membership and people learning who are members of Ciencia Puerto Rico reaching out to us and get, learning how to get involved because that's great. Yeah, well, yeah. I'm so excited about that. Yeah. It's really awesome because, you know, we want to make sure that we're reaching as many women as possible possible yeah and making sure that everybody has a seat at the table when it matters most so yeah awesome very excited about that and on that note what was your cow's name Ooh. oh <laughs> <laughs> out of left field i love yeah. baseball so uh well my first cow's name <laughs> was carioca um and apparently so i that cow we had for like 18 years wow she was with my parents before i was born and apparently i don't remember any of this apparently the cow's name was something else and when i was about two my mom says like one day i just like stood in the yard or whatever and said carioca like pointed at the cow and said carioca and so from there from that point on her name was carioca and which is funny because carioca is actually the nickname for people from rio de janeiro Mm. i don't know how as a two-year-old i made that connection or if it just i don't know how that came about (laughs) so then after that we had so carioca had a calf and her name was nana and she was trouble. She would used to escape a lot. Um, and then uh, we had Teresa, and she got sick, unfortunately, and died. And then we had Carla Beatriz. Wow. 
Wow. Mm. That was like, she had two names. She was. Must have been a special. She was cow royalty. <laughs> I don't know. But yeah, so that last one, Carla, we had, a, a, we had her since she was a year old. So we got her as a calf. Mm. And so in Puerto Rico, there are regions um, where there's a lot of farming and cows and milk production. Um, and so we went to this kind of rural fair and we got her and she ha- she still, I remember, she still had her umbilical cord attached when we got her. But she, she was a year, a day what? old. She was a day old. And... Did I say a year? I said, I'm sorry. It, she was a day old. Okay. And we used to feed her with a bottle. Like we had, we bought powdered milk and oh. we had this like giant bottle that I used to mix the powdered milk with water and used to feed her. Yeah, so they've been, they all the cows I've, I love cows. Like I see a cow and I'm like, oh my God, so cute. But they they really were like pets. Like you would call them, they would come and you could pet them. Oh. Yeah, they were amazing. And <laughs> <laughs> On that note. <laughs> On that note. <laughs> that was a fun wrap up question from Science Soapbox. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks Thank you so us. much yeah, for talking no, with us. This was that. a lot of fun. That's our show, folks. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of Science Soapbox. For more episodes at the intersection of science policy and advocacy, you can check us out on the web at sciencesoapbox.org or follow us on Twitter at science underscore soapbox. You can also subscribe to our episodes on iTunes or Stitcher. And while you're there, leave us a review so that more folks can discover our podcast. Special thanks to the Rockefeller Outreach Lab, where we record our intros and outros, and to Visager, who made the music that you are now listening to. Until next time, I'm Miriam signing off for Devin and Avital.